We are in the book of Acts together. We've been going through it. Uh, my goodness, it's been, it's been a few months as we've just been walking through it. And here's what I love about going through a book of the Bible is that um, I don't get to necessarily pick and choose what I want to preach on. Uh, the Word of God just dictates that for me and for us. And as we walk down through it, I love how God lines up his people um, with, with what it is that's going on in our lives or in my life and, uh, and has a word just in due season. Last week we talked about worship and it was, uh, it was just a powerful word about worshiping God in the midst of uh, really tough times in your life. So if you missed that, I'd love you to, to kind of uh, pick, pick back up on that. And then um, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 and uh, we're going to read about Paul in Athens today. So as we do each week, as we read the Word of God, would you mind standing with me as we honor God's Word? If you're at home, love for you to stand up as well. Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 16, and it starts out like this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. And there they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at, the, at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think about that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, well, we want, we want to hear more about, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Other among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. 
Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, uh, that it relates even to us in our current culture that we live in. I pray that uh, as we read through what it is that Paul did in Athens, I pray that we would, we would walk away with, with principles and things and a passion for our own culture, our own nation, and where our nation is at. God, I pray that it would get down on the inside of us a passion to see people come to know the one true living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You be seated. So, um, it's, just, it's just interesting. I, I, I love this portion of Scripture. It, it's, it's really different. Like, Paul, Paul arrives in Athens, Greece. And uh, his friends are planning on joining him, but they're not there yet. And so he literally is there. He's got a few attendants maybe, but not like his, his bros, not his guys, right? They're not, Silas isn't there yet. And, and so he's kind of walking around a bit like, a, like you would at Athens, right? You're just kind of looking around and seeing all the sights. And, and he's noticing um, all of these idols, these statues, these works of art. And uh, verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Now, if you know anything about Athens, uh, there were idols and statues and shrines in every public place and every building in Athens. They literally had a god for everything you can think of. One ancient writer um, tells us that at, the, at that time, there were about 30,000 gods in Athens. 30,000 gods in Athens. There's this ancient historian, his name's Petronius, and he, he wrote, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. As you walk around, you're, you're more likely to find a statue, a god of something than you would to maybe even see a person. And all of their gods were essentially a deification of human qualities or forces of nature, right? They, 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 would, they would take a, a human quality or a force of nature, they would deify it, give it a name, give it a story, and create myths around all of these different uh, gods. Um, there were gods that were patterned after humans, essentially. When, when you create your own god, guess what? It, it's patterned after you. It, when, when we worship a god that we've created in our own image, it, it, it usually acts like us, thinks like us, talks like us, behaves like us. Um, and when we worship a god that's created us in his image, it usually, uh, well, we usually disagree with him. Um, and so as we look at all of these, these myths about these gods and how they interacted, if you've ever studied Greek mythology, um, man, if, let me just tell you, if you think that your family is dysfunctional, it's, it's pretty scary. I mean, some of these myths that, that are told of these Greek gods, many of the myths honestly sound like kind of a mesh of like a, an episode of The Young and the Restless and the Jerry Springer show, like all kind of melded together. Um, it's extremely dysfunctional. It's patterned after humans. It's a deification of human qualities, a deification of, of uh, forces of nature. And so the, the point is this, that they got 30,000 of these gods, and no one, no one really trusts any of these gods. I mean, you just read any of these stories. None of them are trusted. None of these gods are like adored, right? They're not like, ah, oh, I just, 
I'd love to meet Zeus one day. Like, no, you just try to stay out of Zeus's way, right? Because if you look at them, I mean, they're fickle, they are unpredictable, they are downright ruthless, the stories that you hear about what they do to themselves, if not human beings. And so a lot of times, as we look throughout Athens and look through this ancient culture, they treat these gods like, um, like cosmic vending machines, right? Like, so if you need, like, a, you want to have it like a good day of fishing, then you would maybe make a sacrifice to Poseidon the god of the sea, right? If you, um, let's say you, you wanted to uh, find love, right? You're just like, man, forget match.com. You would just leave a gift to uh, Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love, and that would maybe possibly find you the one, right? The, the, the match, the, the love that you've been looking for or waiting for. Um, I was even, as I was going down through this, there's even a goddess who presided over the sewer system. Yeah, so like if you needed a good flush, right? You're just like praying. You've been there. You're like, oh my gosh. You, know, like, you just needed this thing to work the way it's supposed to work. You'd say a quick prayer to Cloachina. And uh, hopefully Cloachina would bless you with good graces, right? <laughs> just please let it go down, right? I mean, like, so, so there was a God literally for every part of humanity. And they were patterned after, after humans. There was a God, there was a goddess, um, for everything under, under heaven. And Paul sees this. He's, he's walking around Athens. And how does he respond? You can read it. It says that he's greatly distressed. He's grieved over it. He's walking around. And he could have sat there and just with his arms folded and been like, sinners, a bunch of liberals, right? He could have been. He could have walked around in judgment, but he walks around and he is just deeply grieved at what is going on in this city. The 30,000 gods that they're worshiping and they don't know the one true God. It says in verse 17, I love this because he actually does something about it. He doesn't sit there with his arms crossed in judgment saying, stinking sinners, can't wait to get out of Athens. This is overwhelming. He does something about it. It says in verse 17 that he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And this is what I love as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Now, we see that word marketplace, and we think of shopping, right? We're like, oh, he went to the outlets, right? I mean, like, oh, he's just, you know, he went, he's, he's hanging out at Market Basket. Like, no, no, no. It's, this isn't, um, in, in Athens, the marketplace was not just a, a place of shopping. It could have been a place of shopping. There were, you know, commerce and things that were happening in the marketplace, but it wasn't just for shopping or getting food or clothing. When it, when it says the marketplace, think of this. It was like a gathering place for the news. It was a gathering place for gossip and politics and philosophy and any new ideas. People just gathered around and just gabbed. They talked about all kinds of things. So it was kind of like at your office, the water cooler. It's kind of like news media, the university, and Facebook of Athens. Think of that. It is Facebook of Athens. Any new idea, anything that was coming around, people were just talking about it, listening to all the things that were, that were swirling around them at that, at that day and that time. And essentially, the question that we're going to wrestle with today is this, how do you preach the gospel to people 
who, uh, or a culture or a city who are open-minded, liberal, progressive, morally relative, spiritual? How do you preach the gospel to people that are so open-minded that, uh, well, they're, they're open to all spiritual things and yet convicted of nothing? They love new ideas. They love hearing about that. But just don't actually infringe on the other 30,000 gods that I'm worshiping as well, especially Cloachina, the sewer goddess. Like, keep your hands off of, off of her. And I want you to notice that, that Paul is not intimidated at all. He is one guy with a completely different system, completely different theology than the people of Athens. He could have been completely overwhelmed, completely just sitting there saying, man, this, I, I, there's no way I can, I can even weigh into this. I have nothing in common with them. But I want you to notice that he is not intimidated in the least. In fact, he just kind of wades right into the middle of it. He goes right into the marketplace and he starts talking about Jesus in the marketplace. Can I just, I just want to encourage you, church, it, it, it's time for the church to stop retreating to the safety of our buildings and begin to influence in the marketplace again. For so long, we've, we've been so concerned about our, our ability in, in meeting in, 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 a, in, a, in a group and as a people, and that is important, but we are the called out ones to go influence in the marketplace of our city, at our workplace, in our families, and in our neighborhoods. And what I love about Paul is that he's one guy against 30,000 others, right? And he's like, yeah, but here's, here's the thing that I love about him is that he's convinced that, that his God overpowers all 30,000 others. He is completely convinced. He's like, I know that all these people are probably so much smarter than me and they can talk circles around me with all their philosophy. He is completely convinced that his God, the God, the creator of the universe, can wade in to the middle of people who think that they're smarter than they really are and speak truth in the middle of all of it. This is what I love about that. I mean, he, 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 just, he just goes right into the, the, the middle of it. And when I talk about like, us being called outside of the four walls of a church, I just want us to understand, gone are the days where if you build it, they will come in America. Right? Nobody's waking up on a Sunday and saying, man, you know what? I think I'm going to go to church today. That church down the street just repaved their parking lot. That looked awesome. I'm coming to church, right? They could care less. They care less. Probably don't even know this is a church. They think it's called North Entrance because that's the biggest sign on our building, Right? The only way, and we, we can sit and we can, man, you know, Bedford's going to hell in a handbasket. Man, I, I can't even believe that all these things are happening. Un unless we realize that our responsibility isn't just to cloister, our responsibility, the called out, the sent out ones to go and to be an influence in the marketplace. This is what Paul does. This is what we are called. Every single one of us are called to do. To live, to love people in your unique workplace, in your unique neighborhood to love in such a way that people would ask for the reason for the hope that you have. And see, Paul just like, he's convinced that the gospel's for everyone, even people who think completely, who don't even look like him, don't even act like him. People that watch the, that, that news media network. Yeah, the gospel's for that. Yeah, the gospel's for everyone, even people who worship 30,000 other gods. Paul's like, yeah, Jesus died for you. 
Let me tell you about this unknown God. He's convinced of it. And I love this in verse 18. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, maybe some of you know this. Most of you probably aren't up on Epicurean and Stoic philosophies. Let me give you just a a thumbnail sketch in in your notes today. Um, It's kind of a brief understanding of these two philosophies. And and if you know anything about it, you're going to mean that he is really grossly overgeneralizing these things. And I I get that. I, I, I have like... I have five minutes to go through this, so just give me some grace there. But here's the thing. So Epicureans, they believe that the meaning of life is to be happy. The meaning of life is to be happy. So they held to this kind of adage of like, if it makes you happy, then it must be right. Enjoy life to the fullest and avoid pain at all cost. This is the kind of Epicurean mindset of philosophy of life. I know we've never heard anything like that in America. Um, the, the, the second one is Stoicism, Stoics. This is the other group of people that were arguing with Paul. And they were kind of on the opposite extreme. They believed that the, the meaning of life was to be good. And so um, they, did, they were determined that they were not going to be lured by pleasures that the Epicureans were. They, they weren't going to be deterred by pain. Pain was not going to deter them from, from doing good. And they had this kind of idea that, like, don't ever let life get to you. Keep a stiff upper lip, right? Endure life no matter what comes to you. And so whatever you believe, believe it with sincerity because that's all that matters. As long as you believe with, with sincerity, just press on through life, then that's the only thing that matters. And we could see these two things kind of playing out even today. We think like, you know, Stoics and Epicureans, um, that philosophy kind of trickles down even today. This isn't just kind of an ancient way of looking at life. This is a way that, that many people, in fact, many of us struggle with these two things creeping into our own Christianity and our own thoughts. We have Epicureans who believe that, the, that personal happiness is the end goal of life, Right? We say these things. Well, well, God surely wants me to be happy. And so what ends up happening is that our morals and our virtues are good as long as they work for me. So if, if, I, if I disagree with those morals, if I disagree with those, or they're not, they're not working towards my happiness, and so then I can, I can push away anything else. And we say things in our culture. You do you. You do you. If it feels good, do it. It must be right. It's Epicurean. It's this Epicurean kind of mindset, this philosophy that isn't just an ancient, ancient Greek philosophy. It trickles down today. And then we have Stoicism, Stoics, who believe that the aim of life the, is to do good, to be good, to, to give back, to, to be a good person, to send good vibes, right? And so what, whatever you believe, just believe it with sincerity, and that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it and you're sincere about it. So be a good person, and the universe will pay you back good fortune. Stoicism. So we've got these two people, these two people groups that are like arguing on two totally different levels with Paul about who this God, this Jesus is. And look how they respond to him in verse 18. It says, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this, this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And in other words, they believed that, that Jesus was a God and that the resurrection was somehow a God. 
Because they just, well, they just found more gods. Okay, he's talking about foreign gods. But they call him a babbler, right? This word in Greek, I was like, that's kind of an odd thing to call somebody, right? I mean, was he just droning on or what does that mean? This, this word babbler in the Greek gives this connotation of gathering bits of information and then spouting them off secondhand without any real knowledge of their meaning. Let me say that again, maybe a different way. It's when you take bits of information, uh, whatever, that, whatever that looks like, and then you don't really think it through and you don't own it as your own, you just spout it off without actually understanding or knowing the meaning. And that's why they're like, this guy's a babbler. It's kind of like Facebook. Taking bits of information and reposting it, taking bits of information and resending it and, re and, and, and blasting and, and doing all of these things. It, it, that's what they're accusing him of. They're like, you don't even know what you're talking about, essentially. But they're interested. They're interested, even though they're like, I feel like this guy's babbling. I feel like he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's taking information and he's, he's just spouting it off. No, but they're interested. Look at what they say in 19, verse 19. They took him and brought him to the meeting at the Areopagus. This is like the uppity ups. These are the people that are like literally the, the, the do-nothing, sit-around-and-talk people. These are, this is a group of people, very smart people. These are the highly educated Harvard University. I mean, this, these, these, these people know what they're talking about. And they said to him, may we know that this, uh, what this new teaching is that you're presenting, you're bringing, bringing strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. And look at this next verse. Verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time, look at it, doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They spent all their time doing nothing, but instead talking and listening to the latest ideas. And I mean this in love. This is the proclivity for every single one of us, isn't it? To spend our days doing nothing but watching, listening, and scrolling, and posting, and reposting, and binging, and arguing, and debating the latest things to come across our newsfeed. And what concerns me, even within the Christian church today, specifically within the Christian church today, is that we would, we would take a, a philosophical or a political viewpoint and raise it up above God. And that we would begin to worshiping at the throne of our own opinions. And that we would become so obsessed with the latest news that the good news becomes old news. Be obsessed and swarmed with all of the greatest, newest ideas, the news feed that is ever bombarding us every single moment of every single day on every device that we hold in our hands. And the, and the good news, the gospel, becomes old news in the midst of it. And so Paul speaks to these people who love hearing about new things. They're like, this is great. Tell us about these new gods. We got some space over here, 30,002. That would be great. We have some room for you. 
And so Paul gets the opportunity to address them. And look what he says in verse 22. He stands up in front of this meeting of these Harvard-educated. I mean, they are like the uppity-ups. They, they're probably all smoking pipes and just like, hmm, hmm, doing a lot of that. Because that's what we do, right? And so they, they say in verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I don't know if he meant that like tongue-in-cheek. Um, I think they probably took it as as a compliment. And I love the fact that rather than ridiculing them for their idol worship, he affirms them for their searching. He's like, he's like look, essentially what he's saying without saying it is like, you're completely wrong, but you're, you're, you're seeking. You're searching for God. And I see that it is very apparent in everything in your life. I can see that you're truly, really searching for God. And what we know to be true, and I said this last week, is that we are worshipers by nature. And when, when, when God, the one true holy creator God that gives us life and breath and in him we have our being, the true Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, like when, when, when he is not the center of who we worship, we will fill our lives with 30,000 other things. All kinds of other things that will compete for the one true God. And in all reality, these gods were really just simply avenues to get what they wanted to get out of them. They were avenues to get what we tend to worship as well, success, money, good fortune, other, other people, love, control, possessions, ourselves. There's avenues to get the things that we're really truly worshiping underneath. You can call it Aphrodite, you can call it call it, you know, uh, Zeus, whatever you want to call it. But the reality is it's just a simply a way to get what we were hoping to get. And so he says this, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, to an unknown God. So they have this idol, this statue, this thing, and literally inscribed in it is to an unknown God. The Greek would have said agnosto theo, agnosto, which is the word that we get our word agnostic, which means that I am undecided about God. He is unknown. He is unknowable. Agnostos theo. And so essentially, they built an altar to a just-in-case God, right? Just in case one of the other 30,000 that we've we, we've, we have stories about and we know that they're, they're, they're gods over these different areas. Just in case one of them shows up and says, I'm going to smite you for not worshiping me, they'd be like, no, 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 no. We got you right here. We got you right here. We got a place for you. We just didn't know your name. No, we got it right here. Absolutely. We got a placard. Hold on. Get the placard. Get the placard. What, your name was Elmer, God of glue. Praise be to Elmer's glue. Yes, absolutely. Yes, we got you here. Awesome. Yeah, Elmer, we're, we're in your corner, man. We've been worshiping you forever. See how old this thing is? We should know your name. You've been really quiet, Elmer. They had this like just in case God. And many times we like to cover our bases. We got the 30,000 plus one. I should probably add Jesus to that just to cover all my bases. So at the end of my days, I can say, well, I worshiped him too. Along with all the other things that are competing for his glory. No, 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 no. I, we got this covered. And he says in verse 23, Paul says, you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. 
And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, I have a name to the unknown God that you're worshiping. I'd love to tell you about him. His name's Jesus. And he starts literally going in. And, and I, I love that. I, I think we could learn something from this. Why? Because I think that many times Christians, as we, as we, as we live and, and move and have our being in the world today, we try to answer questions that unbelievers aren't asking. We, we try to answer questions and, and they're like, I, I actually don't even wonder those questions. What I love what Paul does, he's like, hey, I see that you have a question. You've got an unknown God. I'd love to tell you about that. I have an answer. His name is Jesus Christ. Oh, tell us more. And then Paul preaches the gospel to them. Look how he does it in verse 24. I'm going to outline some of this. Verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. The first thing that Paul says is he's talking about this unknown God that they're worshiping, but they don't know is that he's God of all of it, that, that God made the world and everything in it. He is the creator of all of this thing. He's bigger than Zeus. Bigger than Zeus? He's bigger than the goddess of the sewer system. Bigger than her? Bigger than Aphrodite. I like her. He's bigger than all of that. The God that I'm telling you about, Paul says, is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one true God. He gives everyone life and breath and everything else that you think that you possess comes from him. And he doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't reside in a shrine. He won't fit in the Parthenon, even though you got a little, little place for him in a house and you put his little name on there, the placard. He's a, he's a maker of heaven and earth. And the second thing he says is this, that God is not made by human hands. He's not made by human hands. Paul writes later on in Romans, he says this, Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. See, see the Greeks would make these like statues, would make these, these shrines, and then they would have to tend to it. If you've ever seen shrines or like the whole kind of like you light a bunch of candles and there's these, these shrines around them, you, it's not a set it and forget it. Now you got to clean it. You got to tend to it. You got to make sure that it's all put together the way that it should to please the, the God that it, that it represents. You got to leave presents for it. Clean up the, the, the dead things that, that, that are there now. They would say that like even in, in ancient Rome, in, in Athens, excuse me, they would actually kind of um, feed these things, like awkwardly, kind of like when you try to like feed a doll, you know, it doesn't really do anything, but you just kind of like, I'm just smearing it on there, we'll clean it up, right? They would actually, like, actually tend to these gods and feed them. What always amazes me is the propensity of humanity to worship what our hands create. I made that. Do you see that? We do it with our own children, don't we? I, yeah. Rather than worship the God who gave us the ability to create. What if we looked at our kids very differently and that we're not worshiping them as though they were little gods, but we worship the God who gave us the opportunity and to, to parent them and to steward them well? That's my role. It's amazing the propensity that we have to worship the things that our hands create. 
Because if I worship a God that I've created, then he's going to end up looking like me, acting like me, talking like me, thinking like me. But if I worship a God who created me, then it takes me out of the driver's seat of dictating truth. All of a sudden, my opinions, although I think they are amazing, I don't know about you, I think my opinions are awesome. I think they're always right. But if I worship a God who created me in his image, then all of my opinions kind of pale in comparison to the word of his truth. And so when it comes to the word of God and I read something and I think, well, that's, I don't agree with that. Get rid of that. That's a God that I've created in my own image. But when a God who's created me in his image, I I disagree with, then guess who has to change and change? say, okay, I'm going to come into agreement with the God who created me and rather than worship a God that I've created in my own image. This is, the, this is the crux that every single one of us, not just the people of Athens, not just Paul, but people every single day in churches all over the world have to come to this reconciliation with. Is this a God that I'm continually molding and making to look more like me, or am I continually submitting myself to his hewn of the stonemason to say, I, am, I, I will submit myself to look more and more like him? And so the people of Athens had already gone down that road of creating gods created in their own image. And this decision changes everything in the life of a Christian, in the life of a person in in Athens. Every single one of us comes to this. And Paul says, let me tell you about this unknown God. Let me tell you who he really is. He's the maker of everything. He continues in verse 26. He says, for one man, from one man, he made all the nations. He's talking about Jesus that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, and he marked out their appointed times and history and the, the boundaries of their lands. God did, did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. The third thing is this. He says, people naturally long to seek and worship God. We have this innate desire, this longing in every single one of us. You're like, well, what, what about people that, that, that are on the other side of the political spectrum as me? Yeah, they do too. What about people that are like worshiping Satan? I mean, they certainly don't have the same proclivity to, to work. Absolutely, they do. What about people that are like worshiping and still believe in this whole mythology and stuff like that? Do you think that they, yeah, Absolutely. Every single one of us has a proclivity on the inside of us, an innate desire that God has placed in us to worship. And if it's not God, it will be something else or it will be ourselves. This is the thing that we all struggle with. And I love that, that, that he says, like, this God that you think is unknowable, he's not unknowable. This God that you're like, well, I, I just, I'm, I, I don't know about. Paul's arguing that this God is not unknowable. He is not unknown. In fact, he is closer than you think he is. He's really close. And he continues and he, he proves it in verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, as some of your po- own poets have said, we are his offspring. So that first one, I love it. He says, for in him we we live and move and have our being. Does anybody know what Bible verse he's quoting there? It's not a Bible verse. That's why. If you were like, I do, I'd be like, oh, really? You got a weird Bible. Like, it's because it's not in the Bible. What he's quoting here 
is not a Bible verse. It's actually a poem written in 600 BC to Zeus. And what he's saying is like, guys, look, you, you don't realize this, but this unknown God that you think you can't know, he wants to know you. In fact, he set things up so that you would seek him, that you would find him, that you would worship him. And even your own poems, even your own writers have written about a God like this. You, you, you've prophesied these things. You, you've written these about this God. I know you have this desire to, to long to know this God that I would love to tell you about and introduce you to. And he's saying, even in your own writings, you've written about this. It's like he's looking at the, at, the, at the Stoics, he's looking at the Epicureans, he's looking at all these philosophers, all these uppity ops, all these Harvard-educated um, people standing around wondering, hmm, they're deep philosophers. And he's saying, how is your current God working for you? How are all these 30,000 gods working for you? And he looks at the Epicureans and he's like, how's that working for you? Because what I know to be true is that when you pursue happiness as the end goal, it usually leads to loneliness and emptiness. When the end goal is for you to be happy, it usually means that there's a trail of bodies along the way of collateral damage to the end goal of your own happiness. How's that going for you? Like, you believe that you're supposed to follow your heart. Where has it led you? It's probably led you to a lot of heartache along the way. And then he looks at the Stoics and he's like, how's, how's that going for you? How, how, how's, that, how's that working for you? Because what we know to be true is that the pursuit of, of your own goodness usually leads to feelings of either pride or defeat. Ah, I'm doing really well. In fact, I'm doing better than most of you. Or I can't do this thing. I'm not good at this whole life thing. And I can't be good enough. How's it working for you? And he looks at all these people and he goes on in verse 29. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, you said it, not me, you said it. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's like, in the past, God may have overlooked some of these things, but now he commands that all people everywhere to repent. Paul's communicating to them what they already know to be true, which is this. God is greater than you can ever even imagine. If God were small enough for you to understand, then he wouldn't be big enough for you to worship. And what he's speaking to the hearts of us, for, to you today, what he's speaking to these, these philosophers, is like, guys, you know. You know this. You know that God has to be bigger than a statue. You know that God's got to be, be bigger than something that your mind can think up or create a story around? You're smart enough. You, you know this. You know that, that any God that is worth worshiping has to be bigger than a, than a statue of him. He's greater than you can ever even imagine. This is the God I'm telling you about. This is the unknown God that your heart has longed to know. And I'm telling you, you can know him. And he says in verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
He closes it as he drops the mic and pretty much says, Jesus Christ is the answer to your questions. He's the answer. You want to know the name of this unknown God that you worship? Let me tell you about him. He was literally raised from the dead and he is returning to judge the living and the dead. This is the God, the creator of all the world. And listen, you don't become a Christian by adding him to one of the 30,000 other gods. Yeah, we got room. Bring Jesus on. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I got room here. I got 30,000. One, yeah. Let's worship him too. We become Christians when we realize and recognize that he is the way, the truth, the life, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of you. It gives you breath in your lungs and everything else that we think that we possess. And he wants you to seek him. He wants you to find him. He wants, because he's closer than you think that he is. And he wants you to repent of all the other gods that you've tried to fill in and receive him as your Lord and Savior. This this is the gospel that Paul preaches to a bunch of cult, like a bunch of open-minded, progressive, morally relative, spiritual people. This is the message that he proclaims. And, and it sounds very exclusive, but in reality is the most inclusive message you've ever heard. And the world would like to say, well, that's narrow-minded, that's closed-minded. And, and, and every single Christian would say, you don't understand. He died for you. He wants to know you. He wants to have relationship with you. He's made a way where there seems to be no way. Why don't you stand with me? He, um, it ends with this. There's three different responses that he gets from these people. It says, when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered. Others said, uh, we want to hear you again on this subject. So they were interested. And then Paul left the council, and some of them became followers of Paul and believed. So three things. Some, some of them mocked. Some of them um, were interested, curious, want to know more. Some of them joined Paul and believed. Can I just encourage you, church, Christian, Christ follower, you should expect all three responses in your, in your life. Some people will mock you for your belief. Expect it. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be mad about it. You should expect it. If you got made fun of for being a Christian, awesome, right? Expect it. It, it happened to Paul, it happened to Jesus, and it's happened all throughout history to every Christian who's, who's done anything worthy of the calling of God in their life. So if, if, if you've experienced sneering or mocking, it's okay, you're in good company. You're in great company, actually. So expect it. The, the second thing that they do, some of them are curious, they're drawn to him. I want to know more about this. We expect that. Expect people to, to have questions about what do you believe and how do you walk through this with, with, with such faith? I, I don't understand that. I, I want what, what you have. Expect it. 
And if nobody's asking you these questions, if nobody's curious or drawn to it, then maybe assess the, the reality, is, is Jesus your embarrassing friend? The one that we hang out with in the four walls of a church building, but we walk outside and don't admit that we actually have a relationship with. And then the third, third thing is some of them joined and believed. Expect it. Because, because sometimes the, the people who seem so far from Jesus are only one encounter away from him. Just like you were. Man, I know some of you, and I know some of your stories, and nobody would have ever thought you would come to church. I mean, even your mama didn't think that you'd be here. Because the reality is that every single one of us, no matter how far away we may look or act or think, are just one encounter away from the living God. And when they meet him, man, I tell you, you don't have to convince. Nobody had to convince me to follow him. (laughs) I was introduced to him, and when I encountered him, I wanted to give him my life. That is how people become Christians. It says some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Isn't that weird? If you just read verse 34, I always thought that was weird. Some of them became followers of Paul and believed. Notice that they joined Paul and then believed. Isn't that odd? It's a kind of an odd order, an odd way of stating it. But here's the reality, that people will many times follow you before they follow Jesus. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you are needed? In fact, none of you came to Jesus in a vacuum. Whether you had a great-grandmother that was praying for your soul, or you had a friend that decided in college to invite you to Jesus, or you had somebody in the, a weird Jesus freak that you were smoking dope with that all of a sudden was like, man, I just, I just found Jesus. And you're like, what? Who's that? You got to try him, dude. And all of a sudden, you're here today. None of us come to Jesus in a vacuum, which means that every single one of you, you're like, but I'm not an evangelist. I don't have that. I, I, took, the, I took the list. And I, I'm not on. I, I don't have evangelism. It's not my gifting, which God would say, I don't care. We're called to live, to love, to be in the lives of other people and live in such a way that they would ask for the reason, for the hope that we have. And then we're called to have an answer for that, that Jesus is not our embarrassing friend. And in the midst of it, and this is where we got to come to the, this reality, is it true or not? Is, did Jesus die for every single person? And is everybody on a path of trying to, to find a God to worship? Yeah, but you don't understand. They're worshiping this. They're worshiping comfort. They're worshiping this. I, look at, You should look at it just like Paul and say, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious. Well, I'm not religious. Yeah, oh, yes, you are. You're searching for something. I just want you to know that the thing that you've been searching for, the God that you've been wanting to worship with your life, I just want to, I want to let you know he's closer than you think he is. He's not far. You've been looking for him, you've been searching for him, and he's right there. He's right there. 
So how do you respond? Mocking, curious, or believing? And maybe you're here today, and this is what I want to I want to give you this opportunity. Maybe you're here today and you're kind of like, you, you've been on this place. Maybe, you, maybe you're mocking. Maybe you're like, yeah, these uh, weak-willed, impressionable Christians, like this is, uh, I don't need this in my life. Or maybe you're questioning. Maybe you're like, yeah, but I'm here because I'm interested. Somebody invited me and I'm just, I haven't made this leap of faith for myself, but I, man, there's something here. And I, I, I watch you worship and I've, I've watched my friend go through some hard times and they're still worshiping this God. I want what they have. I just don't know how to get it. That's literally how I came to Jesus. I had a a crazy youth leader who who just loved Jesus, was healed of cancer, and wouldn't shut up about him. And I was like, okay, if this is real, if I can truly have a relationship with this unknown God, this God that I'm kind of worshiping because I'm going to, to, to church, I'm doing the thing, I'm paying the dues, but I don't know him, he's really, truly closer than I think that he is. How, how, what do I got to do? And I literally just came to this place of like, just help me, introduce me. So maybe you're there today. Maybe you're in this place of God. I, I don't know what I think. I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling, but I want, if this is real, then why would I not want this in my life? And so I want to just, every single one of us, maybe just bow your heads today. If you're in a place of just saying, you know what? I've been searching, I've been longing. And if this is really true, if, if this creator of the universe wants to have a relationship with me, if it's possible, then I wanna know this unknown God. And I literally said a prayer just kind of like this, and maybe you say this with me. <laughs> Father God, I realize that I need help. And and if I can know you, then I want to. And I choose this day to repent of all the other things that I've chased after. All the other things that I've longed for. And I receive the one true God. I choose to believe that you sent your one and only son to die on a cross and to be raised from the dead so that I could have more and better life. And so today, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and as my Savior. Lord, I just, I lift him up. I lift up every single person that kind of made that that choice today. And you may be like, well, it can't be that easy. (laughs) He's closer than you think. Lord, I pray for every person that crossed that line, that made a decision to take that step towards you. Lord, I pray you'd meet them. I pray that they would know that they know that they know that as they walk out these doors, they are changed from the inside out. I pray you'd you just chase after them. I pray you'd give them dreams and visions and confirmations. I pray that somebody would say, man, there's something different about you. What is going on? 
I pray that you have joy that didn't come from success or ambition or possessions or, or, or their job, but that there would be a joy that would well up on the inside of them and flow out of them like rivers of living water. So Lord, we just thank you that you came to know us and that we can know you, that you are not unknowable. We give you praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.